BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on June 30th. It was a blockbuster week in Washington, and there is lots to discuss. Cassidy Hutchinson gave surprise testimony before the January 6th committee, detailing fits of violent rage from the former President Trump on January 6th and his awareness and lack of concern that the crowd that day was armed. And the nation continues to grapple with the earth-shattering decision from the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and make abortion illegal in swaths of the United States. A quick programming note, this podcast was recorded before the Supreme Court issued its final rulings today, when we expect them to hand down decisions on the future of the EPA and the Trump border policy. But here to discuss this week's topics and more are Amanda Becker, politics reporter for the 19th News. Thanks for having me. Morning. Alan Smith, political reporter and my colleague at NBC News. Thanks for having me on the day, Ginger. And Lauren Burke, writer for The Guardian and Black Press USA and host of the Burke File podcast. How are you, Ginger? Great. Glad to have everyone here. Let's jump right in to these really huge news stories this week. I think we've all been uh, working nonstop to try to figure out what exactly to make of all of this. Um, And let's start with the January 6th committee. We saw Cassidy Hutchinson in this last minute uh, convened hearing of the January 6th committee. Amanda, can you just give us the rundown about what we saw uh, unfold on, on Tuesday? Wow, you're starting with me. Well, where to begin? Um, Honestly, I thought I had lost my ability to be shocked anymore um, covering Washington, but I found out on Tuesday that I still have the ability to be shocked. I mean, I... There were things that Cassidy Hutchinson was testifying about that were just, frankly, mind-blowing. I mean, this is a, a young staffer. I believe she was 24 at the time when most of this was occurring, She was in the middle of uh, men who are the most powerful people in the world, many years her senior, who were all kind of using her as a go-between voice of reason to try and convince the other side to do what they wanted them to do. So it was Kevin McCarthy calling her and yelling at her, you know, don't let Donald Trump come up to the Capitol. It was... Uh, you know, advisors. Uh, She was having to relay messages to Mark Meadows, who apparently wasn't paying attention and more interested in his phone. Um, You know, she was describing Trump, you know, throwing plates and splattering ketchup in the wall because he was angry um, that she'd been told he tried to grab the wheel of the beast to to direct it back to the Capitol because he wanted to go. And uh, I just, it it was honestly a jaw-dropping day of testimony. Lauren, I'd love to hear what what moment 
surprised or shocked to do Maybe nothing did at all, but was there a moment in that day that you thought, wow, I didn't, didn't see that one coming? Um, yeah, there was plenty. I mean, Amanda, of course, captures the mood here, which is that once you think you can't be shocked, yeah, you can be shocked. Uh, as somebody who has uh, got a lot of law enforcement, my family, my father, and I'm dating a U.S. Capitol Police officer, this whole interaction with regard to the alleged grabbing of the steering wheel, of course, was the thing that uh, got my attention. Um, with the understanding that so much law enforcement tends to lean to the right, and, and we've all seen the Secret Service uh, sort of pushing back on what uh, Hutchinson said on that. Uh, still, this idea that you know we're having open conversations uh, about things like so the President of the United States grabbing the wheel of the car from a Secret Service agent, open conversations about what might happen if the President of the United States uh, somehow went against his own vice president, the vice president being concerned about take, being taken someplace else by the Secret Service and having some concern about whether or not they might bring him back or not to the Capitol. All of that in open discussion is hugely shocking. And, you know, the idea that all of these people are put in this position, it's like the drunk at the dinner table. The idea that you have to manage somebody who is this crazy on a daily basis. We're only seeing a, a snapshot of a few days or really one specific day, the 6th of January 2021. Imagine what was going on in other situations. So this thing is, this was shocking. This was amazing. And the fact that this hearing is done not like a typical congressional hearing where you have everybody talking and then, you know, with hearings like this, we would have the, you know, uh, meltdown by people like Jim Jordan or whatever. We don't have any of that. This runs as a trial. So it's very easily digested, very well put together. And, and this was striking, absolutely striking. Alan, you cover Republicans and um, have a lot of insight into the Republican world and the Republican voter. Um, I like the way Lauren just put it. It was easily digestible. Um, but do you get any sense that um, the Republican Party and the Trump world is concerned about how this is playing? Um, we are hearing from Trump. We saw all of this pushback of Hutchinson um, the day after she testified. But is it worry or is it just Trump being Trump? We've seen throughout the, the January 6th uh, panel's hearings, uh, Trump being pretty upset that there's not what he would consider to be equal representation for himself on the panel, right? He's really upset that there's not that Jim Jordan who's, uh, you know, giving, giving that take for all of the witnesses. Um, he's, as reporting has shown, kind of upset with Kevin McCarthy over the decision to pull all of the Republicans that he had uh, put up for the the committee after a couple of them were rejected uh, in its in its initial founding, uh, even though he was a part of the decision making to do that in the first place. Um, the the Hutchinson testimony has really gotten something out of uh, Republicans and and people close to Trump that you haven't seen in some of the other hearings, and that is really really intense pushback. Um, you've seen allies of the president really highlighting, or rather the former president highlighting, uh, the secret service statements, uh, the reporting that's been out there from sources close to, 
uh, Mr. Ornato, who is really at the center of a lot of this stuff on January 6th. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, whether they have live testimony with Ornato, with Angle in front of the committee. Uh, I know that these guys, the sources close to them have said that they're willing to do this. Let's see if that's actually true. Um, I know Stephanie Murphy said yesterday that Ornato, when he testified behind closed doors, uh, had kind of a fuzzy memory about some of the stuff on January 6th and was not able to recall uh, a lot of questions that they had they had asked of him. So we'll we'll see. I mean, Ornato was someone who was very close to the president, obviously elevated to this very high role in the White House. Uh, we don't know how loyalties are going to be playing into this. Obviously, Cassidy Hutchinson was someone else who was very high up in the White House, a close aide to Mark Meadows. Uh, and and her accounting was, I mean, for all the stuff that we followed with Trump throughout the years, it's, it, it is really hard to be shocked about things. Some of the things she said were really uh, eye opening. Uh, of course, the steering wheel incident, because of how visual, how, how visceral that is, really stood out. Um, but kind of lost in the shuffle is the fact that she was in the room with Trump when he was told people were being turned away from the rally with weapons. And he was saying, uh, according to her account, you know, get rid of the magnetometers, let these people in. We need a bigger rally crowd. They're not there to hurt me. Um, and knowing what we know about what happened on January 6th, I mean, that's just that's that's really key to to our understanding. Amanda, you cover a lot of conservative women. Um, you talk to that world of voters on a regular basis. This young woman who got up to testify, 25 years old now, was younger um, when this was all unfolding more than a year ago. Do you think that that boosts her credibility with any of these voters? Do you find that people were or think people will be sort of more likely to believe a young conservative woman um, when they hear her talk about what, what Trump said and did? I mean, I think it's a little bit too early to, to see how kind of voters will react to Cassidy Hutchinson in particular. But I think the fact that we actually saw, um, even if it was, you know, nameless, um, House lawmakers, House Republicans being like, uh, you know, kind of, wow, having the same reaction that that we are is a difference. I mean, we didn't, we haven't heard that after other days of testimony in this trial, which of course they're painting as kind of a, a partisan witch hunt and a scam. I mean, at the 19th, we, we write a lot about gender and how that plays into politics and policy. And I think we all know, like people had already mentioned the fact that Mark Meadows never came to the Hill without Cassidy Hutchinson. You know, she was his shadow with him at all times. Um, I think her testimony just really showed how, frankly, um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, some, sometimes in work situations, let's say if you're a younger woman, you can kind of blend into the background. People don't notice you. Uh, you're treated as a non-factor. Uh, she was clearly around for a lot. Um, she seemed very credible. And I think that this will actually be kind of the one day of testimony I've seen so far that that could make a difference. Uh, this was also the first time I heard applause as somebody uh, testified in that hearing room. Um, it was just a really compelling, wild day of testimony. Lauren, you had a piece this week about how these security concerns still continue today, that Capitol Police remain concerned. I get the sense from from that that we, you know, it wasn't an, 
single one-off event that happened a year ago, this is an ongoing issue and concern that we're still sort of living the fallout. Um, or maybe even fallout is, is not quite the word, the, the conditions. Could you, could you explain that to us? And talking to, of course, all the members of the uh, Capitol Hill community, specifically the police and, of course, the chief and, of course, the members, uh, I was stunned. I, I guess I shouldn't be stunned, but I've been around Capitol Hill for more than 20 years. And, um, you know, to have members say that they're afraid to physically attend hearings be- until it is figured out uh, the rules around whether or not members can carry firearms is a pretty shocking thing to say. There's a few members who will not attend hearings in person because they're worried about their colleagues carrying firearms. Um, There's members of the U.S. Capitol Police who have said, and they are understaffed, as I'm sure everybody can just see from the naked eye uh, walking around Capitol Hill, um, there are, are concerns from the cops with regard to members carrying firearms and their concerns about going back to business as usual. Um, you've, everybody's probably noticed that, you know, you see the tours um, and talking to some of the tour guides on background. They are not happy with the fact that there's no real change in the rules since January 6, 2021. Uh, there's a lot of suggestion among some staff that, um, like the White House security, there should be a record of everyone who enters the Capitol complex, which, as you know, at the White House, you know, there is a record of that, who comes in the White House and who comes out. And, um I think that the general mood is still tense. Uh, the fact that the U.S. Capitol Police is understaffed is hugely problematic. <laughs> and um, when we have um, any sort of thing at the Capitol, whether it's an arrival or anything else, you can see that the level of lockdown is different. Um, you can also notice, too, that no, no, though no one has actually said this, it is virtually impossible now to walk up as a civilian to a member of Congress because If there is a press conference at the Swamp or the Triangle, all of that is now fenced off, which once upon a time, that wasn't the case. You walk onto the plaza relatively easy if there was a presser. Now what they're doing is they're closing that every time there's a presser on the outside. And all of this is heading to what the former Sergeant Barnes, Terrence Gaynor, wanted to do, which was really just fence off the entire Capitol complex. And you can see that. So there's a lot of issues in the background that are not uh, necessarily obvious, but uh, I think we're going to see some very long-term changes at the Capitol with regard to security that uh, that that I think are predictable, but it's, it's funny how slow that's happening and how concerned some of the members are about security generally. This testimony also brought in some other folks, some members, Cassie Hutchinson had testified before that was played about pardons. Alan, she also brought up more people, she said, were looking for pardons, including Rudy Giuliani um, and Mark Meadows. Giuliani gave a weird response, um, a tweet that I think he then deleted. Can you talk a little bit about what we saw them saying um, in response to her testimony that they wanted pardons after January 6th? So uh, Rudy, a guy who was known for saying a lot of different things, um, his lawyer initially comes out with a statement speaking as Giuliani saying that he had never asked for a pardon. Uh, didn't he express he didn't want one, didn't need one, never asked. He tweets the next day that Cassidy Hutchinson was not, not in the room when he asked for a pardon and then added, and I didn't even, I told the president I didn't even need one, I didn't want one. So then he goes and takes that tweet, deletes it, and puts up a new tweet not mentioning uh, any any line about him having asked for a pardon. 
Um, this is coming off of the most recent testimony in which the, the committee showed an email from Mo Brooks in which he had asked for pardons for every single Republican lawmaker who voted to object to election results, uh, had named a couple of lawmakers. Uh, I believe Matt Gates was someone who had also been at the center of this pardon uh, discussion. Brooks last week had had said that there were certain conditions he would testify under. It would have to be live. It would have to be questioned by uh, a member of Congress, so on and so forth. Uh, the, the conditions didn't seem prohibitive for him to be there uh, testifying before the committee. So we could learn a lot more about pardons uh, coming up here soon. Uh, and, and really, you know, as we take a step back and look at the committee, uh, we were kind of expecting a little bit of break here until July uh, before the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony. And it's really incredible at this point. This investigation has been going on for so long. And yet there's still so much new stuff that's coming out. Uh, there's so much additional testimony that they could still get that would be uh, really important as far as even just setting the historical record around January 6th. Um, so it's really, for me, really interesting to see what happens going forward. I would love to see if they end up interviewing Mo Brooks for this. I, I think he could have you know, a lot of information worthwhile to share, especially as it relates to the pardons that uh, I think everyone's really, really keen on finding out about. Let me ask you, Amanda, when we look at more testimony, more investigation, more things. We're talking about, we're in, you know, it's almost July. Um, They go home for August. They come back in September. They have elections in November. Are they going to be still holding hearings the week before voters go to the polls? Are we going to get a report from them before? And does that affect the way people see this? If we're knocking on election day and we've got, um, these hearings still going. I'm wondering this myself because they keep adding hearing dates and we're already kind of past the time where they originally thought they might be finished with the public hearings. Um, they, They are, I think, going to have some more in July. But as you said, if they don't wrap it up, then they all are gone and for the month of August, essentially. Um, to run, you know, to run their campaigns because they're a lot of them are up for re-election. All, all, everyone in the House and a third of the Senate. Um, and I do think there's a risk there for Democrats if this is still going on in October um, as we get closer to Election Day, because they have tried very hard to say that this is not a partisan exercise and it's not political, and it's simply about holding accountable people accountable and democracy. And I think the closer you get to an election day, the optics of that become naturally more political. And so I think that it's likely um, in Democrats' best interest to wrap this up um, as far away from election day as possible. Yeah, it seems like they they had this schedule that was going to go through June, and now it's sort of gotten blown up, and we're looking at July, and, and I, I would be shocked if we're not talking more about this in August and September, but... There's lots more to talk about, but let's take a break before we get to the abortion decision. Um, We're going to take this short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson sitting in for Bill along with Amanda Becker, Alan Smith, and Lauren Burke. Friends, you know... (laughs) I'm like you, I'm sure. Every time we see the images of Ukraine on television, people being blown out of their apartment buildings, taking shelter in basements, fleeing to the borders, families breaking up. 
all of us ask ourselves, oh my God, what can we do? How can we possibly help? Here's another idea. Carol and I are doing this, and I hope you will too. Uh, let's help out the World Central Kitchen. Jose Andres and his people are on the scene like they are with every major disaster. Uh, they're on the job in Ukraine, in Poland, Moldova, in Romania, uh, helping the refugees, providing hot meals, and a whole lot more. They need our help, uh, and that's one way to get help directly to the Ukrainian people. Go to their website at wck.org, wck.org, and provide whatever help you can. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor for NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill, along with Amanda Becker, politics reporter for 19th News, Alan Smith, political reporter for NBC News, and Lauren Burke, writer for The Guardian and Black Press USA. Let's get uh, to this decision we saw come down from the Supreme Court on Friday, um, really just a landmark decision. Lauren, I think everyone knows now what this decision said, but could you give us sort of a, a recap of what we've seen unfold uh, as a result of this decision over the last days and week? Well, I mean, obviously, we've seen a ton of protests around the country and, of course, in front of the Supreme Court building. Uh, we've also seen, I think, uh, from the president and the White House, some confusion about how they're going to go forward. And, you know, the leadership of the Democratic Party in this moment has really come out of, uh, in my view, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, sort of doing a whole Twitter thread about what she feels the plan should be for the party moving forward and Elizabeth Warren. And um, you don't see any real uh, strong guidance politically coming out of the White House. There's talks back and forth about not wanting to appear too radical. There's reporting that, you know, they don't want to look like they're making any big moves to counter uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But uh, I'm a little bit surprised by that, frankly, because as we all know as reporters, there was a leaked draft decision of this decision written by Associate Justice Alito uh, back in May. And uh, one would think that the Democratic Party would have had a plan by now, two months later, about how exactly politically they want to address this. Obviously, this is a cornerstone of American law uh, for the women's movement, to say the least, uh, that goes to healthcare issues and personal freedom. 
And one would think that there would have been some big forward plan on how to deal with that should this happen. And it has now happened. And uh, the Democratic Party, at least the leadership at the top, would appear to have no answers yet. So that's part of what is, I think, interesting in this moment. Well, the Democrats seem to have not had an answer yet, but those who were opposed to abortion moved very quickly in some places. A number of states executed trigger laws. Amanda, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, do we get the sense that this is being felt by people um, outside of Washington, or is it still sort of a shrug, doesn't seem real? We saw protests, but were those sort of unrepresentative or representative of what we think uh, people are, are, are feeling and thinking about this decision? I think when we're, you know, just from the, the question of, are, is this being felt outside of Washington? Um, I'm, I'm going to step away from politics for a minute and say, absolutely, yes. I mean, my colleagues have a story out this morning about clinics in Texas, Louisiana, and Utah, who were some of the sites that were some of the states that um, a ban went into effect um, that's now on hold again because of legal challenges. So they're describing how clinics that had canceled appointments are now calling people back and saying, yes, you can come in. Now those people are, you know, some of them are deciding like, I don't want this to get canceled again when, you know, the ban goes back into place. I've already made another appointment and I'm driving to New Mexico. Um, so there is already chaos in areas of the country where people are being turned away from medical care. Uh, they're going to other places for medical care. Uh, states where abortion is protected are already predicting influxes. Um, Maryland, actually, a law goes into effect today that allows non-doctors such as nurses and midwives to train to perform abortions because they're expecting Maryland as the southernmost state that is protective of abortion rights to get people from all over the South who are coming north to get their abortions. So, I mean, this this from a medical care standpoint is already creating chaos. And I have to imagine that people will pay be paying attention politically as they start to see this play out in their communities. And it really becomes real to people across this country. Let's go back to the politics for a second. Alan, we didn't see Donald Trump spike the football. Um, but the, and the Republican response has been, um, while those who want abortion made illegal everywhere, pretty consistent politically has, has maybe not been. And what is your sense of how Republicans are seeing how this could affect them, uh, come November? So first off on Trump, has he spiked the football? I, I mean, I would say barely. This is an essentially the lasting legacy of his presidency, nominating these justices to the Supreme Court uh, and, and having a balance of the court that overturned Roe, which Republicans, conservatives have been trying to do for 50 years. Uh, you would figure with something that monumental happening, he would be out there trying to take as much credit as possible. And he is most definitely not trying to do that right now. Um, he's made a couple of comments uh, praising the decision, but not what you would expect for something like this. Um, and I, I think it goes back to, you know, at least publicly uh, until about 10 years ago, Donald Trump was pro-abortion rights. Um, so I think this is an issue where we don't really have a clear sense of where he actually stands. Um, but if you look at what Republicans are out there saying, uh, they're all pretty united in two things right now. One, they're saying they don't think this is going to have a big effect on the midterms. Uh, I, I think that remains to be seen. 
this is going to be an issue that plays out really big in a lot of state races, especially governor's races, where, you know, the difference in what the abortion laws are going to be in the state is going to come down to who's in the governor's mansion. I'm thinking Pennsylvania specifically, but this is really going to play out as a major issue in some huge state races. Um, and the other thing Republicans are saying uh, in their in their messaging pretty completely is that Democrats are for abortion, uh, essentially up until the moment of birth. They're really trying to spread the message that Democrats are very extreme on abortion. And I think this is really to counteract the idea that Roe is falling. All of these trigger laws are coming into, into effect. There are going to be other states that are enacting bans, you know, at the six week point, possibly even earlier. And they're trying to get the message out there of being essentially, well, the other side is very extreme too. So there really isn't a moderate choice on this issue being presented in public policy. Um, I, I, I think it remains to be seen really how, how people are going to react to this at the polls. I think a big issue is going to be people thinking uh, potentially that Democrats are not doing enough to combat this. And then, uh, you know, what's the point of voting at all on this issue? Uh, I, I agree that it's really shocking considering we had a draft decision come out uh, in May that there's not a more complete plan from Democrats as to what to do to counteract this. Really, all we've heard so far from the Biden administration are all of the things they're not going to do about this. But we really don't have any sense of what federal uh, the, the administration and what the, the lawmakers are, are doing about this. Uh, and I, I think that's really going to to spirit a number of, of Democratic voters. Lauren, you write a lot about Black voters and issues that have affected Black voters. And a lot of the discussion about this decision has been about how it disproportionately affects minorities, poorer women. Um, do you get a sense that this is a rallying cry or could be a rallying cry? Um, Polls tell us that minority voters are probably more disaffected uh, with Biden than some other voting blocs, if we're going to use those terms. Uh, what is your sense? Um, I think that for black voters, you know, there's a little bit of a, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than it may uh, seem, though, Ginger, obviously, you know, you're right when you say that uh, this type of decision disproportionately impacts any group that would be uh, having any sort of economic challenges or having hurdles put in front of them in, in a way, you know, in any way where they have to drive to another state to have a medical procedure, et cetera, and so on. So that certainly disproportionately would impact black women. Uh, on the other hand, what you find in some places in the South is that black people are a little bit more conservative about abortion. And I think people would think, I think people would be a little bit surprised to find that, you know, uh, Unplanned pregnancies uh, in the South are a lot of times dealt with by, okay, we're going to have the baby. <laughs> you know, it's not something that is just standard practice that everybody's out, you know, having abortions. So uh, it's a little bit complicated in the Black community, just as it is in most communities. Uh, I think, though, using it as a political issue only happens if a political party knows how to message effectively, which I think the history shows the Democratic Party has some challenges in that area, to say the least. Some of those challenges are brought on by the reality of politics, you know, just the fact that Nancy Pelosi, for example, had to go recently campaign for a uh, a pro-life Democrat, uh, Representative Cuellar. And then we see this deal. We're hearing the news that the uh, <laughs> that Joe Biden made some deal with Mitch McConnell with regard to a, a judge, uh, Chad Meredith, um, who is uh, a federalist judge uh, who is is pro-life. Uh, so it, until it is 
until this issue becomes something that the Democrats uh, become very uh, astute at how to message. And to me, I think there's some pretty obvious markers here. The Republican Party often argues about personal freedom and freedom this and less government in people's lives, et cetera, and so on. And then here you have this issue that goes to one of the most personal issues in one's life. So uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not clear on why the Democrats can't message around that, but I think it becoming a political issue hinges a great deal on the question of whether or not the Democrats can do that. And so we will see moving forward. Amanda, let's pull back the lens to sort of wrap this up a tad bit. We didn't just see an abortion decision from the Supreme Court. We also saw highly criticized by the left gun decision. Um, we expect to see them probably gut the EPA um, in a decision um, that's coming. We saw this prayer in public schools that the left has been highly critical of. Um, and we don't hear, as Lauren said, a message, a unified message coming out of the White House. There doesn't appear to be guidance being given to the party about how to message this to voters. Um, is is Biden, is the Biden White House dropping the ball here? I mean, if you look at abortion as just one example that we've been talking about, I mean, obviously there are some dynamics here that are specific to that and that the president um, has a personal discomfort with abortion. And frankly, uh, it shows and it shows in how his administration is responding. They have said for weeks leading up to this decision, even after the leak, so we knew exactly what was going to happen, that they had a plan ready. We haven't seen much so far. They put out a, a dashboard about reproductive rights through the HHS um, to help you know people find information. Um, because one of the things that they're saying is that, you know, medication abortion is going to become even more important, but people don't have a level of knowledge about that. So that's going to have to be like a public health campaign. So they are doing that. But, you know, by my count, I think the president has still only said abortion twice um, in, you know, coming out of his own mouth verbally. Um, and I'm not sure how a party runs on something when the party's figurehead can't talk about it. And we've already seen the vice president, Kamala Harris, start to step into this area more. Um, maybe this will become an area where she's mostly the one involved in kind of carrying the party's message. But Biden has already said, like, well, you know, Congress needs to do something about this, not me. So he's already kind of abdicating his administration's responsibility to a certain degree. At the same time, you know, he's not fully on board with fil filibuster reform and other things that would allow the Senate to get something done on this and many other things. So I don't know how they can go out on the campaign trail and talk about this when they aren't going to all be on the same page. You have some senators like Elizabeth Warren saying Biden should explore, you know, um, opening abortion clinics and facilities on federal lands, on the borders of national parks, in federal buildings. Um, of course, that would be challenged. But, you know, they're kind of a mess on this and all over the place as a party. And I'm not sure why, because we've all known that this was coming. So if they didn't prepare, that seems to be a willful decision to me to kind of abdicate, uh, you know, being the one to set the direction on this. And I think we're seeing the same thing in a couple areas, other areas that are important to Democrats as well. Well, this has been a great conversation today. I'm Ginger Gibson sitting in for Bill along with Amanda Becker, Alan Smith, and Lauren Burke. Now it's time for your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read. Lauren, how about you get us started? What was your favorite read this week? 
Well, it's sort of in keeping with what I was working uh, on with Guardian with regard to uh, capital security. It was not a joyful story of my favorite in terms of any positive energy, but I think an important story, which was the story on Adam Kinziger receiving death threats, he and his family receiving death threats uh, because, of course, his participation on the January 6th committee. And uh, I think it was CBS that broke that story. Um, I uh, feel like this is something that is getting scarier and scarier that is not talked about enough. The fact that members of Congress have to receive uh, plainclothes security to serve on a committee, analyzing an attack on the U.S. Capitol. And I just think I want to amplify that story a little bit. We kind of went in and out of the news very quickly. Uh, and I would dovetail this by saying that we had a story, I think the week before with regard to justice, associate justice, Brett Kavanaugh, and some guy who came across the country to threaten his life. Uh, that was for some reason, that story was kind of buried actually, which I found very strange. Uh, so I will say that my uh, important story of the week is on political violence and uh, Representative Kinzinger. Thanks a lot, Ginger. Amanda, what was your favorite story of the day, of the week? So my favorite story, I think, published yesterday online, um, and it is in Vanity Fair. So Val Demings, a House lawmaker who's running for Senate in Florida, got the got the Annie Leibovitz treatment in Vanity Fair. Um, so it's amazing photos. She's on her motorcycle. She looks like a total badass, if I'm allowed to say that on this pod. Um, but the profile that goes along with it is actually quite good. Um, I'm actually working on a Val Demings story. So um, I always like to read kind of what other people are writing. And it's very good. Um, and it's called Val Demings is on a Mission. And it's just a really interesting look into kind of um, her place in the political world right now and whether, you know, uh, she has a chance in Florida to beat Marco Rubio. I think that's a race we're all going to be watching to see if she can pull that one out. Alan, how about you? Well, I'm going to give a shout out to our NBC News colleague, Bracey Harris, who wrote from uh, a Memphis abortion clinic after the Roe ruling came out, or rather the Dobbs ruling. There have been a bunch of stories uh, posted in the aftermath uh, showing that, you know, in some states, really everything's up in the air right now. And I think zooming in on this Memphis clinic, you know, it really was striking the immediacy of how this ruling is going to change people's lives, uh, to see people scrambling for whether their appointment can even go forward, uh, the clinic figuring out, you know, how far into the future can we keep going? Are people who have appointments scheduled for 48 hours from now, are we going to have to cancel all of those? Um, I, I think it just really, really sets in just how, how this decision is going to be changing so many people's lives, not months from now, not years from now, but right now. Um, and I think with a lot of stuff like this, you know, the, the instant reaction tends to be, oh, well, you know, let's see what happens, you know, later down the road, what's going to change. I mean, it'll take time for these changes to really be implemented with this. I mean, in, in many states, that's really not the case. Like everything is changing right now. And I think for a lot of people that this hasn't necessarily set in yet. Yeah, those, that was a hard story to read when you think about the effect it had on those women. I am going to leave the world of American politics and, in fact, America for my story and go across the pond and say the most interesting story I read um, this week was by the New York Times about the Chelsea Football Club in London. 
Um, and they really took a deep dive into the toxic culture. Um, Americans may recall this club has come into the news because it was owned by a Russian oligarch. And when the U.S. and um, the EU sanctioned him after um, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, he had to give up the team. And so he sold it. Um, and it is a a fascinating look at sort of the toxic culture that has unfolded inside this team, including a very tragic suicide of one of their staffers. Um, and so they really do um, just an amazing job of getting inside what was going on. But I think for Americans, it's also um, an interesting read because we talk about the toxic culture of our sports teams of football, those recent hearings we saw on the Hill about uh, Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. Um, and it's interesting to see how it compares and is different and is the same uh, to sports clubs in other countries. And so um, just an amazing piece worth the read if um, you've ever worked in a toxic workplace and you uh, want to see how another one unfolds or you're a sports fan or you're not a sports fan um, and you're interested in Goodreads, I would highly recommend it. That's a wrap for this edition of the Build Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Amanda Becker, politics reporter for 19th News, Alan Smith, political reporter for NBC News, and Lauren Burke, writer for The Guardian and Black Press USA. <laughs>